finally, from so little sleeping and so much reading, his brain dried up, and he went completely out of his mind. This is Dried Up Brain, and I'm Nate. And I'm Andrea. And this is the podcast where we read things, we talk about them. This episode, we read a novella, as we do half of the time, and it's called Gentleman of the Road by Michael Shabon. So, I guess a lot of people know Michael Chabon. He's an award-winning author. He's very popular. He writes a lot of bestsellers. This was written in 2007. Which would be the same year as his probably most famous work, The Yiddish Policeman's Union. Right, exactly. Which I think he won the Hugo Award for that. Yeah, because I think it was one of the few that I didn't have to read because I'd already read it before when I did the Hugo Award reading list. But this was interesting because this was published as a serial novel in the New York Times weekend magazine, which I wanted to let people know if you want to read it and you don't have a copy of it, you can read the serialized version on the internet. If you Google Gentlemen of the Road NYT, it'll come up with the first chapter and you can just read through all the 15 different parts that were issued each week. Yeah, you um, mentioned this to me. And I was, I didn't know what you were talking about at first. But I have since realized that I was reading this a little bit when it was being serialized. I read the first few chapters as they were released because I was so excited about him as a writer. Like, I read Yiddish Policeman's Union almost as soon as it came out. Uh, but then I just, like, got distracted. I never ended up finishing it in the serialized form. So this, now, for the podcast, was the first time I ever read the whole thing all the way through. Yeah, this edition that we read was the Del Rey edition published I think in 2008 and it's illustrated by Gary Gianni who's a comic book artist who is also award-winning and I don't know if you want to talk a little bit about his work before we get into more about Michael Chabon in general yeah he has like a very um illustrative is a weird word because it basically means nothing but like he has a very detailed uh, sort of style that one I would associate with stuff like black and white comics, magazines, and serialized adventure strips, which is appropriate because for a while he was the main artist on Prince Valiant. I think from 2004 to 2012, which would have been during the time that he was illustrating this, he would have been working on Prince Valiant. He's done some, like, Hellboy stuff. He's worked on, like, Classics Illustrated. And he won a Hugo Award for... An Eisner. An Eisner. Oh, jeez. <laughs> he won an Eisner Award for a uh, a uh, Batman Black and White story that he did. Black, that's, like, a for people who don't know, that's, like, an anthology uh, with just black and white stories with, you know, sort of uh, out-of-the-box writer and artist teams. Or sometimes just, you know, one cartoonist working on it. It, there's like I think the first volume of Batman Black and White Stories even has a uh, comic by Katsuhiro Otomo, who's the you know most famous for creating Akira. Uh, so yeah, he's I like the illustrations in this a lot. They're they're very like classic adventure story type illustrations. They feel like the kind of, of illustrations you would see uh, in like a collection of like Edgar Rice Burroughs stories or something. Yeah, and this story really has that sort of ode to like manly adventures. One of the things that I want to mention about Gianni is he did the Game of Thrones prequel graphic novel, A Kingdom A Knight of the Seven Kingdoms in twenty fifteen, which I guess 
sort of told the story before the series started about the hedge knights that are part of the story plot lines in Game of Thrones. Yeah, well, I think we we read that, didn't we? Yeah, I know I read it, and I think I might have passed it on to you because I think I got it from the library at one point. Mm, yeah. And I think it, it was either, I don't remember about the TV show, because I actually didn't start watching the TV show until like the third season. Really? Because I was reading the books, and I didn't want to uh. read past, I didn't want to watch past what I had read. Mm-hmm. So. I think I started watching, I think I, what I did was... I watched all but the last episode of the first season, like the day, the, like two days before the finale of the first season. So then I watched that live and was watching the show week to week since from then on. Well, we talk a lot about the difference between people who read the book series and people who watch the TV series and people who do both. And Nate will tell you that it's very annoying to to live with someone who does both because... All they still continually talk about is what is different in the book and in the movie. This is a this is a constant problem. I'm gonna I'm just gonna oh, for people if this is your first episode listening to this, Andrea is my mom. Um, she's also a librarian. But I wanna call her out. This is an official call out calling out my mom section of the podcast. Uh, multiple times you have spoiled things for me by referencing the book. <laughs> While the thing was happening, we watched... Is this Fight Club all over? We watched Fight Club when I was younger, and you, for some reason, assumed I had read the book when I hadn't, and just casually mentioned, like, oh, yeah, this is, like, crazy when you find out that he's uh, it's a split personality. And you did the same thing we were watching the one time, the one time I was like, you know what, I'm going to watch Game of Thrones with my mom. Uh, normally I would watch it on my own, and then eventually I started watching it with my friends, it happened to be the, I believe it's the Purple Wedding. Spoiler alert for Game of Thrones. It's when Joffrey dies. And a whole lead up to it, you're just going like, ooh, mm, ooh I'm not going to say it. And like immediately I knew what you were t- what you were talking about. It totally spoiled it. It's funny that a person whose tagline is spoiler alert is the one who never uses the spoiler alert. Yeah. But also, like, I guess I'm kind of being a hypocrite because I go on and on about how I actually don't care about spoilers. But it's but hard. I think that sh- you, by constantly spoiling things, trained me to not care about spoilers. You desensitized me to spoilers. I think growing up in a time when there was only one chance to watch something, mm-hmm. that there wasn't the expectation that... There was this expectation that everybody watched something. Yeah. And they knew what was going to happen. So when you immediately started talking about it, you were talking about it with people who had also seen it. Now in the like age of watching whenever you want, some people don't watch it. Like wasn't the Sunday night Game of Thrones. Mm-hmm. And so Monday mornings were always like, did you watch it? If not, get out because we're going to talk about it. Yeah. I also think because of that dynamic where if you miss something... You missed it. Like you were, you were contingent on either catching a rerun or, or something, or hoping that you maybe uh, your friend taped it. And in that era, I think what we would call a spoiler was oftentimes kind of a service to the person you were spoiling the thing for, so that they would know you were telling them what would happen, and then they were like, "Okay, so like when I catch X Files next week, I'll know what the fuck happened in the previous episode." But now it's, it's, the dynamic has turned. Yes. And now it's a it's a violence against them to tell them what happened, you know, on I can't name any current TV shows because I don't watch TV. 
Well, I feel like that's my time to say, that's me, I'm a Gen X. That's how we do it. Yeah. Sorry for spoiling it, but in my defense, by the age of 14, you should have read Fight Club. Well, you should have given me a copy of Fight Club. I don't know where I would have gotten it. And if you're 14 and you haven't watched Fight Club, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for being eight when that movie came out. I there's my brain like I mean two things. One, I want to say it's crazy that Fight Club came out in 1999. That what a wild year for movies. Because uh, it's also like Eternal Sunshine, it's mine, mm-hmm. and all sorts of other crazy stuff. Uh, the other thing was. We should maybe talk about this at some point more on the show in, like, a more focused episode. But the thing you were saying where it was, like, there was only one chance to watch something gave rise to, like, a whole cottage industry that has been completely wiped out at this point of novelizations of television episodes. Like, there's a whole series of Doctor Who novelizations of individual episodes that serve that purpose of, like, oh, well, you didn't see Remembrance of the Daleks because you weren't watching TV at the time. And you're probably not going to get to watch it again until we do, like, a marathon or something. But you can go down to a little bookstore and pay, like, a dollar like or a pound or whatever and get a little paperback that just is the whole story of that episode. Well, they used to sell all the time in the, in the like, magazine section right before the premiere of, like, the X-Files or, like, Twin Peaks or whatever. These sort of, like, magazines that had, like... The previous season plot highlights and all the characters and then have like you know kind of like essays about what could possibly be happening and i remember it was very helpful to have this x-files one because it was like the first really complicated story arches where there would be like you know small story arches that might be two or three episodes Mm. and then it was the longer multiple series like you know with the yeah the myth arc is what it's come to be known as i think that was maybe a term that chris carter coined himself because i remember we would get these magazines and we would like pour over like these they would have these complicated timelines it's kind of like what you would just google nowadays Mm -hmm. and you you would get it but that would be like your way to like get through the summer and then sometimes in the summer they would replay the season again so you could catch the episodes that you missed but if you were like a dumbass and you decided you wanted to go like out on a date on friday night and you did not see what happened on twin peaks then you would be like vilified because you just like totally blew your chance to like understand it and do the like week-long speculation about what is actually going on yeah i mean there were a whole in addition to magazines there were like published you know, like, hardbound episode guides for shows. The kind of stuff that is just on Wikipedia now uh, that would help people, like, if you were trying to tape all the episodes or try to see if you had seen them all or just to keep up with the plot. But there were also, they published those for shows that were not plot-heavily. I know there was a Simpsons one. Oh, yeah. Where it just listed every Simpsons episode and gave, like, a summary of each of them. And, like, I guess if you wanted to watch every episode of The Simpsons back in the day, you would use that as and check off the episodes as you saw them in reruns or whatever. But there was, like, this whole ecosystem, kind of doesn't exist now, kind of, sort of, still does, where you could have a, a relationship to a work completely outside of its primary medium. You, you could read Doctor Who as a book series, or, you know, entirely keep up with plots of shows by just, like, reading the episode guides or whatever. And that, like, sort of exists now, because you, you can find summaries, but, but it's definitely not as much of a thing. I think also, I mean, especially with things like Doctor Who, they have, like, other 
mediums to sort of enrich that like mm-hmm. fan enjoyment. Like there's like audio productions that are, you know, not part of the actual show. They're, they run concurrent. They have different plot points, different people playing the mm-hmm. roles. So it's kind of like an added component. And I think another really cool thing that's happening because of the internet is this like access to like fan fiction mm-hmm. and like these sort of domains where fans can exist, you know, like used to be like just forums, like, but now there's like websites for fans and fandoms and there's a whole culture. Well, we just saw Archive of Our Own win a Hugo Award. Yeah, exactly. And also, coincidentally... While looking for character name pronunciations just now, I stumbled upon some gentlemen in the road fan fiction on Archive of Our Own. Well, I think it's funny because there's fan fiction for Gentlemen in the Road, and Gentlemen in the Road itself is a type of fan fiction. It's mm-hmm. Michael well, Chabon's nod to this sort of adventurer story that he grew up with. But let's talk a little bit. Let's get back to, like, Michael Chabon. Let's not do... Sure, sure. Like, so... He was born in D.C., but he went to school in Pittsburgh, and I think he still lives in Pennsylvania, so he immediately becomes beloved to all Pennsylvanians because he set foot into our beloved yeah. state. Yeah, yeah. And so don't say any shit about him because we don't care because we, we love him because he just, because he came to Pennsylvania and lived here, and now he's a beloved I, son of... I definitely associate him with Pittsburgh. Yeah, and I think one of his... Break, his breakout novel, I think it's, it was actually his first novel, was The Mysteries of Pittsburgh. Yeah, yeah. But, um, so, the Yiddish Policeman's Union, which is an alternative history slash crime novel that takes place in Alaska. I just want to say, that book fucking rules. It's genuinely one of my favorite books of all time. Uh, if you haven't read it, it's too long for us to do on this podcast, but uh, if you haven't read it, you should go find it and read it. It's like, if you like detective stories... It's a great detective story. Uh, it's really like moody and complex, and it's like a really cool take on like an alternate history because it's essentially like in the the alternate history happened, and now it's it's in the aftermath of that. And it's got this really great gloomy atmosphere. It's really good. Yeah. So that one he won the Hugo and he won a Nebula for, and then the Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay he won the Pulitzer Prize for. And this is another really, it's like a sweeping novel, very literary, but it's about the early days of comic books. It's very well written, very well researched, and it touches on a lot of like the problems of dealing with, you know, things that, you know, it has a part where there's, you know, they deal with like the religion and the sexuality and the role of women in the industry and it really touches on, like, a lot of, like, the early problems with the comic book industry. Yeah, it's, it's well, okay, first off, like, all that praise I just heaped on Yiddish Policeman's Union, understand that I like The Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay even more. Uh, that book is, like, in the same, almost on the same level of Beneath the Wheel. It's very personally important to me. But, yeah, it's heavily based on, like, Jack Kirby and Stan Lee, but also, like, Will Eisner and lots of and it draws influence from the lives of lots of other comic creators, and I think a lot of the it is about how comics, as this kind of low art form, was kind of became the product of a lot of like people from various different marginalized backgrounds, and like and it's sort of an exploration of that and of the need for I mean like literally the character they create is called the escapist, like it deals with like this need for escapism and the hero narrative and like how 
that sort of collides with the like messy reality of real life. And it's about like like almost all of his books. It's about a really intense relationship between two dudes. Well, I think it's yeah, a lot of that happens in Michael Chabon's novels. But I think Michael Chabon also he incorporates his own personal history mm-hmm. into his stories, which I think is a really nice touch and it really gives a personalized feeling. There's lots of um characters that deal with their religion. He I don't know if he's an he himself is actively Jewish I mean, or his culture or his family, but he talks a lot about like the Jewish experience in the United States, especially like in Cavalier and Clay in the forties and the fifties. Yeah. And I think that's nice. That's a nice touch, that sort of personalization. He's definitely Jewish. I mean, I don't know how much he is practicing. I mean, a lot of his stories well, we'll talk about it. I think there's a lot of um thematic and structural overlap between Gentleman of the Road and Yiddish Policeman's Union to the point where I would almost say Gentleman of the Road is a companion piece to Yiddish Policeman's Union. And a lot of his stories deal with a have one of the major characters at least be someone who's really disillusioned and who has lost their faith in God but also in themselves and society. And so like I mean he definitely deals with themes of like the pe- your com- people's complicated relationships towards religion and the concept of God and also just like the concept of community and culture and stuff like that. I think it's also important to know about Michael Chabon is that he incorporates, I mean, not just on co- with comic books, usually, like almost every single book that he has has something to do with comic books in it. Yeah. But he also incorporates a lot of pop culture and pop culture references in his books. And I think what's nice is he incorporates how pop culture affects like your development like one of the books that i really liked that he wrote was telegraph avenue which Mm -hmm. is about a family and a record store there's lots of references it's set in the 70s about the um, black panther comic books which i think is really i was thinking a lot about this in light of what had happened oh yeah and i felt like the story in Telegraph Avenue, part of one of those subplots is there's two young boys that are friends, an African American boy and a Jewish boy, and how they both like intensely relate to the Black Panther character, but for different reasons, and how like the comic books had forged this bond, this friendship between the two boys, and how these characters affected the way that they interacted with their world, which I think is really nice. Yeah. I mean, he is, I would say he's sort of like in the same school uh, as like a Jonathan Lethem. Like someone who a lot of their work is engaging with like pop culture and what would be at one point called like, you know, like trash culture or lowbrow culture. Uh, So like lots of comic book and movie references and stuff. And I I appreciate as someone who's like, I grew up, anyone who's listened to this podcast or ever talked to me knows that I'm like completely obsessed with pop culture. And, like, a lot, almost all of my, like, friendships started with, like, us connecting over something like that. And, like, that's, like, I like, it's cool to see that reflected. I, this is, like, our... completely random, but I was watching, and I talk about this, I was watching The Chef Show, which is one of my favorite Netflix things to watch. <laughs> okay. For many reasons, which I won't go into, but there was an episode where they were at a bakery and they were talking about, like, what makes a really great food trend and the woman that they were talking with said something about how she likes to take the high and the low and combine it into something new so she takes like the the woman from milk bar yes okay so she takes like the the low end 
like home bake things that, from her childhood and combines them with French cooking techniques to create this new hybrid that becomes like part of the cultural like landscape. And I was thinking like, this is weird because this is exactly what people like Michael Chabon do. They take the low culture part of what is considered low culture in literature, the pop culture part of their childhood that they were growing up with and combine it with literary techniques like styles like John Updike and things like that to create a new type of literature that is relatable to people because it takes all of what they're used to mm. and creates a new product. And I think he does that really, really well. Yeah. Again, like when I was comparing it to Jonathan Lethem, I think they're both writers who a lot of their best stuff comes from them sort of, it's almost like, it's almost like jazz. Like, they take a standard, which is, like, a, a very rigidly structured, formalized form of pulp or, like, populist or genre fiction, like the detective story or the adventure story. And then they improvise on top of it with their, you know, their literary skills. And so that's, I think that's how you get stuff like Yiddish Policeman's Union, which is, like, a noir story. This is, like, an adventure story. And then with, like, Latham, you have, like, a Motherless Brooklyn, which is, like, also, like, a noir story, but it's doing all this other stuff on top top of that structure and using that sort of like familiar tune to draw you in before going off into some more wild spaces. I think, I mean, that's a great way to describe it, but I think what it makes is a really unique modern American writing style, yeah. which I think Michael Chabon is a really good example. I'm sorry for using a jazz metaphor, everyone. Uh, I'll try my best to not also do a baseball metaphor well, at some point. That's, Comes down right to the next thing on my list is that Michael Chabon, like a lot of male American writers, is obsessed with baseball. Yeah, he's very much like a capital A, capital W American writer, which means he likes to wear a baseball cap uh, and an Oxford shirt and talk about baseball. Yes. And and that was my I was going to ask you, like, why do American authors love baseball so much? And even like even including like. Bernard Malmood, who was like, who just came to America. And as soon as he mm -hmm. stepped on American soil, he was like, I want to write a baseball the book. The greatest baseball <laughs> book of all time. The natural. Great book. Uh, that's also so funny because, like, all, I was just recently reading a collection of his, uh, Malmood's short stories. And it was like, they're really good. But they're like some of the bleakest, most depressing things I've ever read. And then I'm like, this is also the guy that wrote The Natural. But, like, The Natural is a little bit weird and gloomy in and of itself. When I was reading The Pulitzer, I think I was reading his, The Fixer, the I Fixer's think. The really good. And, I, and you were at school, and I had bought a copy of it, and then I was like, I'm saving this for Nate. And mm. I gave it to Nate to read and on his break, and he was like, why did you give me this book? It just made <laughs> me so sad. And I was like, because it's a really good book. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I don't know what, I mean, like, I mean, it's the American pastime. Baseball is. I think, like, part of it is just a lot of dudes like baseball. And so, you know, not to be Nate, but, like, in a kind of male-dominated field, like, writing, unfortunately. Like, yeah, a lot of writers will like baseball because a lot of, most of them are dudes because of the patriarchy. And most of them like baseball because baseball is popular. But I think the thing, there's part of it is, like... <sighs> Baseball, like jazz, is very <laughs> is a rich field to mine metaphors out of, you know. And it's got this thing where it's it works very well if you're trying to think about American culture, right? I think baseball works really well as like a lens to to view that from because it's it's an interesting mix of the struggle 
of the individual and the struggle of the collective. The lone batter stands up and goes up against the lone pitcher, but you're holding the weight of the entire team on your back. And then once you run, you, you're you a single person running exposed to the world with, with forces against you, but you are reliant on your team to protect you. Wait, are you? I maybe don't understand baseball. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I think it like it shifts back and forth between this mode of like, this lone warrior with the baseball bat and like I'm part of a team and we're working together to try and get this ball to hit the guy that we don't like to stop him from advancing. And so there's like all of this rich metaphorical space for you to play around with if you feel like, you know, doing so. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. <laughs> I might have just been talking out of my ass. I'm not a huge baseball guy, but I do love stories about baseball. <laughs> I like sports stories, but I do not particularly like sports. Yeah, that's kind of a lot of people, I think. I need the narrative. And so it's like, you can work it into a narrative by literally telling me a story about it. But, like, I got to find it in the thing. And very often it's, like, not satisfying. This is why wrestling is the best, and I like wrestling. Because they're working to make a story. So let's... (laughs) Let's let's talk... We're going to talk about Gentlemen of the Road, finally. There's no baseball in Gentlemen of the Road. No, there is... Okay, can I, can I do my little thing about how I think this is a companion piece to uh, Yiddish Policeman's Union? Yes, go ahead. So, Yiddish Policeman's Union and this both have two, like, they're both buddy stories. Look, every Michael Chabon story is a buddy story. But they both have this setup where it's, like, a very intelligent man who had a calling to a line of work that they wanted to do to help people and who were very good at it, who has suffered a loss... And has become cynical and jaded and depressed and lost their faith. And then they're paired up with a larger, sort of more emotionally aware and intuitive and more physically intimidating character. They're both, both characters in the buddy duo, in the buddy dyad, are Jewish. But the bigger one is like someone who from a sort of, you know... Western American modern perspective seems atypical for that. So, like in Yiddish Policemen's Union, Berko Shemitz is of like First Nations descent, and in Yiddish Policemen's Union, Amram is Ethiopian. Though both of the big characters also carry distinctive signature weapons uh, that are very intimidating. Both of the jaded, cynical characters have some sort of are uh, like. A chemical dependency. Mayor Landsman in Yiddish Police Union is an alcoholic, and Zlickman in Gentleman of the Road is constantly smoking a pipe of weed and getting high and sad. Yep. There is a golden boy messiah yep. figure in both works that is subverted in some way. In Yiddish Policeman's Union, that messiah figure is dead at the start of the story. His death is what kicks off the plot. And we'll get into Gentlemen of the Road, but they sort of doubly and then almost triply subvert that character archetype with Falak. There is a giant, bushy-bearded authority figure who is both sort of like equal parts antagonistic and helpful and slightly inscrutable, who is constrained by their uh, position and the role of tradition in their lives. There's a struggle over like the concept of homeland in both stories, and there's a chess metaphor that recurs throughout them. In Yiddish Police Union, it's very literally chess. In Gentleman of the Road, it's Satran, 
which is like a precursor to chess, I guess, that's of like Indian origin. I feel like there are other comparisons, but those are the big ones. And it feels almost like in a way that you, uh, Gentleman on the Road is kind of like uh, kind of taking a lot of the elements of Yiddish Policeman Union and remixing it into a more sort of like upbeat, action-y, and hopeful story. Yeah. I had gotten the impression from it that it was a, and it might, this might be the, just the more transparent overlayer, that it's a homage to like early action. Oh, I definitely think it is that too. Yeah. Cause I mean, it has some of the kind of tropes. I mean, it's kind of like, um, you know, it's like a classic on the road story, like a swashbuckler, these Mm -hmm. adventures, knights, whatever. And it has like some of the like, sort of motifs that you can find in those stories like in, there's there's this like dependence on on like creatures like the horses which mm-hmm. is very important in in this story the the named horses and even the elephant and then like you said there's this like um love of weaponry like they have named swords or iconic like symbolic weapons that they yield mm-hmm. and you know they have like the, the sidekick and the quest and it's kind of like the kind of stories that young boys would read, like, when they were growing up. But this is kind of, like, he's taken it and he's packaged it specifically to, like, showcase, like, the like Jewish history. Mm-hmm. Like, he, at one point in one of his articles, he even says, like, when people think about Jewish history, they don't think about, like, knights and, like, warriors and, like, this fight, this struggle and the wars that would happen. And he wanted to sort of shine a light on that. Did you read the afterword? Yes. So he talks in the afterward about how he originally wanted to call a story uh, Jews with Swords. And he was saying, like, like, part of the thing with that that appealed to him was that because of the way our sort of, like, cultural and historic perception has evolved, it, despite not being, like, paradoxical or, or outlandish, it has the same, like, immediate visceral feel as, like, the phrase Samurai Taylor or something like that. And this was like sort of a way to reclaim that part of that history, which I think is interesting. It really made me think of like the Fritz Haber, the kind of Fritz Lieber. Lieber. Well, yeah, I've also seen stuff where he specifically referenced like a couple of influences on this. And he cited Fritz Lieber, Edgar Rice Burroughs, Alexander Dumas, Michael Moorcock, and George MacDonald Frazier, which are all writers that I love. But I'm, wouldn't it be like if you were like 12 years old and you read a like an action story, but it was set in a culture that's very relevant to you and you could like relate to it even more than, you know. Yeah. But I mean, I would have like, yeah, like this is, uh, it's definitely drawing on, if, on, uh, you know, a lot of these sort of classical influence. But I do think there's like, not, I don't want to say more going on, but he definitely has like a, a, a different sort of goal than like a traditional adventure story here. So let's get started. But before we get started, let's make sure we know that the term gentleman of the road is like a euphemism for bandits. Yeah. So the two characters, when you first meet them, they're, they're doing a con job. Well, so the story opens with two dudes insulting each other. There's some brief confusion about whether or not a nearby minor bird said the insult and then soul caliber fight happens and it all takes place at this sort of side of the road temporary a caravansary 
Yeah. Uh, and so these two dudes fight, and these these are our our two main characters, the titular gentleman of the road. It takes place in early history, and it's like in around what would be like the Ukraine now, I think, right? Or like this? I think he. It's listed as Abishram. Yeah, Azerbaijan. 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 Uh, yeah. So they these two dudes are our main characters. There's Zilikman, who is a tall. He's this is I think where a lot of the Michael Moorcock influence comes from, in that he is very much an Elric sort of figure. He is a tall, brooding, pale-skinned, long-haired, Frankish physician, uh, dressed in all black with a big, wide-brimmed hat, and he carries this weapon. Called, called Lancet. And I couldn't tell, because of the style this book is written in, which is like a very, very cheeky, lots of use of irony, I couldn't tell if it's literally supposed to be an oversized blood, like, lancing tool, like a needle, or if it's just a rapier that is called Lancet and continually compared to surgical equipment. I, th- I thought it was, like you said, a really thin, pointy sword. He does use it when he's performing medical treatments at one point where he's, they come across a man who needs some surgery and he uses the sword to do the surgery. But I think it's supposed to be like, uh, you know, like a larger kind of like very for forward kind of weapon that he calls the Lancet. Yeah. So he's got that. And then his opponent, air quotes, is this, <laughs> is Amran, who's this large, He's you know called Abyssinian, which we would know to be Ethiopian now. He's an older man with the like, continually described as having gray hair and a gray beard. I think he's supposed to be like in his late fifties. He's an ex-soldier who served in the Frankish Empire. I guess he has a Norseman's axe that he calls Defiler of Mothers or Mother Defiler, and he loses this fight. And then it is revealed that this was all staged, and this is how they've been making their money. They've been rolling into these caravans, provoking fights with each other. Getting people to... Getting people to bet on it and then collecting money. And they uh, are found out by this older man who is a mahout, which is an elephant trainer. And elephants are a recurring uh, symbol throughout the story. If you look at the cover of the edition we read, the title is like in a black circle with like a train of elephants going around it. Uh, And he... The Mahout reveals that he has this young man with him named Falak, which means little elephant, who he needs help transporting somewhere. And he wants to hire them because he was impressed by their skill in this fake fight. So Falak's family has been assassinated by this evil warlord. Yeah, so he he, he is from Khazaria. He is a Khazar. And... The way the Khazars are a really interesting sort of historical enigma. Did you know really anything about them before you no, got I didn't. into this book? So I knew like a little bit. There's a book called Dictionary of the Khazars. Have you ever heard of this? No. This is like a Serbian novel from the eighties. That's a very like weird little piece of metafiction, which is why I read it. I, I found a copy of it at like a thrift shop one time. Uh but so the Khazars were this empire in early AD that was like around where like Turkey is and they were originally like nomadic hunters I think and then they sort of solidified into this more sort of Cecil empire and 
at some point they had a mass conversion to Judaism from whatever sort of uh, pagan religion. I don't know if that's disrespectful or not, but you know they they had a, a non Judeo Christian religion beforehand, and at some point there was a mass conversion. A lot of people contextualize this now as being more like the um, royalty converted, and then a probably large percentage of the populace, but maybe not all of them, also converted along with their leaders. Mm-hmm. And there's lots of there. There's not a lot of written historical record about the Khazars, so they've become this sort of intriguing mystery. In history, that's in, that's led to a, a, a fair amount of art about them that often deals specifically with like the question of like why and how their conversion happened. There's like a poem about a dictionary of the Khazars is about that. Uh, that book's weird because it's like it's about a real historical event and a real historical people, but the version of their culture presented in the book is heavily fictionalized because there's really not a lot of information about them. Uh, the book is presented as three encyclopedia entries, each written from a different religious perspective, uh, specifically being Jewish, Christian, and Islamic. And also, there's a male and female edition of the book, which just ha- each have a diff- uh, one paragraph difference between them. So, yeah. And so the Khazars have this, this really interesting and a sort of anomalous, as far as I can tell, system of governance where they basically had like a uh like a secular leader and a religious leader the secular leader is the beck who that's like a hereditary title i guess and but like often times can pass through a coup and stuff and that's and, kind of like the what we would think of traditionally like the the royalty the king or the queen <laughs> Ruling the empire. Yeah, but then they have a religious leader called the Kagan, who lives in complete isolation and has like a appointed time of like execution at the end of their reign. Uh, and the Kagan, the Beck has power over everyone, but the Kagan has power over the Beck. And Falak's father was the Beck, and he was killed in a coup by this guy called Bulgen. Who, I forget, I think he's he's related to Flag. Yeah, I he's think like, he's like the evil uncle or something like uh, that. And uh, the Mahout snuck Flack out of the kingdom and is trying to get Flack to his, uh, like, family who are, live somewhere else. Their older brother, Alf, was captured by the Rus, who are the Norsemen, the Vikings, uh, who Bolgian has allied with to bolster up his forces for the coup. I thought it was interesting because I had no idea that there was this sort of, there was a portion of Jewish history that crosses over with Viking history, which I think was very interesting. I think we like tend to group all of these, pe- these like historical archetypes off into their own little circles. And we forget how much they, like the Vikings had dealings with like, the Arabs, like if you, the 13th warrior, you know, it's all about that. And it's like, you forget how much all of this stuff, all of these figures sort of crossed over together and how blurry the lines of history are. Like we tend to, I think, think about it almost like, like stories where it's like, well, the Viking story ended and then there were no more Vikings. And we forget how like mushy the boundaries between all these things were. So there are like Vikings, there are Arabian mercenaries, there's an, Ethiopian bandit in this like there's this 
I like that this is is going back and being like, you know, your sort of homogenous idea of history is not really accurate. Things were a lot more diverse and chaotic than you would think they were. Yeah. But so they agree, they reluctantly, because Zelikman is a sad sack, stick in the mud. Agreed. He's also a pragmatist, I think. Yeah. Instead of just painting him as a sad sack. But he is a sad sack. (laughs) Uh, they agree to help the Mahout and Flack, but then the Mahout is assassinated and they're left alone with Flack, who does not want to be delivered into safety. He wants to go back and get revenge on Bolzhin. And he is a very much, a very fiery and determined and kind of a dick. And Zeligman doesn't want any part of this. And Amran is like more of a sort of bleeding heart sensitive kind of guy who who wants the money like Zelikman does but also wants to help this person and what we learn like over the course of it is that and we never really get like told the definitive story but what we learn is Amran had a wife and a child and then he lost them and then he was a soldier and now he's an old man uh, but who's still very good at chopping people's heads off but he also has this really deep platonic relationship with Zeichman. Yeah. And they are their companions on the road. They're in business together. The term that Amran uses is friend of my life at one point. Yeah. They, they, and at one point where things take a turn and I think it is it Zeichman's horse who gets to, he has this beloved stallion, this huge horse. It's a shaggy horse (laughs) with a big nose called Hillel that is like, one of those horses from fiction that's like almost a dog in that it's very smart and loyal in a way you wouldn't expect from horse. So we'll, we'll get to that. They, they set out and they're dragging Flack along trying to take him to the palace of his uncle or cousin or something. Yeah. And they are continually beset by assassins and hunters. And eventually, uh, after like one of these attacks, I believe... Flack steals Amran's horse and runs off and then gets captured. Right. So then he, Amran wants to rescue Flack and also the horse. And Zelikman wants to rescue the horse. Right. And so, but the only reason that Zelik does it is because he wants to rescue his He loves horse. his horse and he loves his hat. His hat is brutalized throughout the story. <laughs> that is like a recurring plot point is that they have this... His hat, which he loves so much, is always defiled in terrible ways. And so what this kicks off is like this series of events in the story where people are continually captured and freed and captured and freed. Like Amran goes to try and free Falak and Falak runs off and they get captured. Zelikman frees them. At one point they um, come across the, the aftermath of a internal conflict between Flax captors. They find this, the ruins of this temple built by Alexander the Great, which is now just like a lone tower that's sort of like crumbling on the hillside. And these dudes have been hired to capture Flack. They succeeded in doing it, but then Flack is so charismatic that he talked half of them into turning on the other half and a brawl ensued that basically wiped them all out. <laughs> And left behind this one guy who is this sort of like jovial, pudgy dude who had taken the job to uh, get money to 
support his girlfriend who is a prostitute. He wants to buy her freedom. Yeah. Uh, his name is Hanukkah. He's kind of the third gentleman of the road. Uh, Zeligman... I see him as almost like the sidekick. Yeah, he's very like a Sancho Panza kind of character. Uh, Zelikman uses his skills as a physician to heal this dude from what would have normally been a fatal gut wound. And then this guy becomes zealously loyal to Zelikman for the rest of the story. And he's kind of like a bumbling figure. He's like constantly getting surprised with like half of his pants on. <laughs> and he's like that kind of character. Uh, which I enjoy. So like sort of the whole thing, they're rescuing each other, they're rescuing Zalikman, they're rescuing Amran, he gets captured, they rescue the horse, uh, and eventually they end up in this situation where Flack has talked this failed company of Arabian mercenaries that had been or I guess just Islamic mercenaries. That had been hired to capture him into swearing their loyalty to him. Because Boljan has allowed the Viking raiders, the Rus, to run roughshod over the Islamic cities in the south of Khazaria. And they're just traveling up and down the coast, sacking these cities and causing chaos and destruction wherever they go. And so Flak rallies this small rebel army around him called the Brotherhood of the Elephant. And initially... They have a really... Uh, the elephant has really seen a lot of war. This is a very rough elephant. It's large, scarred, kind of like a loose cannon of an elephant. It looks tame, but it can go like berserker mood. Yeah, that's like a recurring thing is the idea of like the elephant is, seems like this sort of placid figure, but it is also has incredible destructive power. And so initially, Falak wants them to rally around the cause of freeing and then supporting the claim to the throne of his brother Alp. But then they all reject that and and swear their loyalty to Flack. This is one part piece of important foreshadowing. Uh, Zelikman does not want to go to war. He doesn't like war. Amran is sort of torn. He's a soldier. He has this sense of loyalty to Flack. The other important piece of foreshadowing is Flack continually reminds Amram of his late daughter. So, is it Zuckman or Amran that convinces them to go to talk to the religious leader? Well, what happens first is that they decide, like, there is no stopping it. The, the army is, 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 has been formed. They're marching on the capital. Zelikman decides he's had enough and he parts ways. And there's this interlude where he comes across this band of merchants, these uh, Radonites, who are... I had to look them up. I had never heard of Radonites before. Had you? No. So they're another sort of historical enigma where there's really not much... There's like one primary source about them. And it's unclear if they're a religious sect, a merchant guild, like a trade union, or a specific... An individual clan, or some combination of all of those things, which is how Shabon presents them in this. But they're, they're a, a sect of traveling Jewish merchants. And they have an elephant with them. Uh, and Zelikman recognizes the elephant <laughs> from his youth. He had snuck in, like, he, in, in, uh, Francia, Francia, I don't know how you say it. He had encountered this elephant as a child and, like, snuck off and befriended it 
and fed it an apple. And the elephant never forgets and seems to recognize him. And the elephant is like this big metaphor throughout. Like, I feel like a lot, a lot of ways the elephant is a metaphor for the Jewish people in this. Like, one of the things that signal, that's the big omen of the end of Falak's father's reign is that all of his prized war elephants start to die off. And then this elephant here, far from his home, far from its home, alone, is in a lot of, is a sort of reflection of Zlikman. And then it's like the elephant's also very much a reflection of Amran. Like, they both come from the same continent. They're both taken out and moved here and used as tools of war by empires. Like, it's almost every character in the story gets to be reflected in these elephants. And the Radonites had previously lived, like, in the same city as Zelikman's family. And they revealed to him that, like, his uncle, who I guess he, he, he was, has a very close relationship with his uncle, is dead. And his father has given up on him ever returning. And what we never really get stated outward, or like, uh, like explicitly, but what I think I started to piece together is that Zelikman's past is that he, his disillusionment and his flight from home happened as a result of witnessing a pogrom. Yeah, I think that's kind of set up in this... It's kind of revealed, like, sort of secondhand that that's what happens. Mm-hmm. And then the elephant also here, I think, is this representation of, like... Like you were talking about with the... It looks peaceful and wise, but then it has this structure of power. It becomes, like, a symbol of God, right? Yeah, and I think that he, at that moment, is also a symbol of sort of what... The Jewish experience, especially during World War II, was like, like a lot of the, you know, the German Jews, they got spread across the world because mm. they had to flee their homeland. And he kind of has the same situation. He's fleed his homeland and he's given up sort of part of his identity to take on this generic gentleman of the road bandit sort of persona mm. where he doesn't even openly identify even as a physician, yeah. He just happens to be a guy who can help you when you're hurt. Mm-hmm. Like, so he, you know, he has given up his profession. He's given up his religion. He's given up his family ties and he becomes the sort of wanderer. Mm-hmm. And then he takes up with another wanderer. Yeah. And so he has this moment of like personal and spiritual reflection. And the Radonites offer to give him transport and let him come with them. And to take him home, and then he sees on the horizon the army and, like, the the beginnings of what's going to be a battle. And he steals a saddle and gets back on his horse and rides off to go help his friends. And uh, he is reunited with, you know, Amram and Falak and Hanukkah at that point. And right, then and he, they're, that's when they, they're about to attack and get revenge on the evil back. Mm-hmm. Oh, also part of why he leaves, I think, I, this might happen afterwards, is that he saves Falak from an assassin and his hat is completely destroyed <laughs> by flying knives. Um, well, I think they start to realize that no matter what happens, there's always going to be some kind of trouble brewing around Falak. Yeah. Well, yeah. There's always this, like, specter of violence. But eventually they get to the capital... And they're like, they're, Falak just wants to assault the city. And Amran is advising caution. 
because he wants the soldiers to rest. And Zelikman wants to just do an assassination mission on Bulgin, which they probably could have done and succeeded at if right. they had done it. Because but they decide to take the side quest where they go on to try to talk to... Well, no, no. The re- You're just skipping way ahead. Not way ahead, but you keep skipping ahead. Because what they end up actually doing is Amram gets Flack to chill out by having him send a party to go formally request Bulgin's surrender. Right. Oh, okay, yes, yes. And they send imposters back in the armor of the soldiers who deliver the last of Falak's father's war elephants. And Falak and the elephant have this tender moment, very much reflect, like similar to what happened with Zelikman and the other elephants. And this one's like so old and beat down. And it's like, you know, again, it's a metaphor for... Like the people, it's a, it's kind of like a specter of Flack's father. Um, it's kind, it's very much a metaphor, like a, a reflection of Amram. That's like more what I was talking about. Like that's the one specifically that feels like a reflection of him where it's like, oh, they're both these like old soldiers from a faraway land who are like protecting this, this trying their best to protect this essentially a child who keeps making terrible decisions that puts them and everyone else in danger. Well, I think the thing is, is that Black is like impulse driven. Yeah. But I think Amron is also like that kind of like stereotype of the police chief where he's like, I'm about to retire. Yeah. You know, he just wants to sort of travel and pull this con and just kind of go, you know, live his life. And then all of a sudden he now he's caught in all these like high stakes adventures that he really kind of feels like he's too old and too tired and he's not really invested in because it's not his war it is not his problem but he feels compelled to help Falak. yeah he's like very much not i don't think invested in the geopolitical conflict but he has like a ton of investment in like the personal stakes of like the individual people there's like this really great moment where him and zelikman have this conversation about like where they're fighting this like battle against some of Bulgian's forces and Zelikman is like, please just kill them one at a time because I can only heal them one at a time, <laughs> which is like, uh, I, I thought it was really funny and like really, like w- really novel take on like what a war is like. But so the imposters go to attack Flack and the gentleman and the elephant is killed, but goes out protecting Flack. Uh, but he's captured and stripped down and revealed to be a girl, which is the thing I, did you see that coming? I did. You did? Yeah. I, there was like a point. I can't remember what it was specifically, if it was like when Amran was reminded of his daughter or if it was when she was trying to rally everyone around Alp instead of her. But there was a moment where I was like, oh, I think Falak's a girl. And then there was this reveal and I was like, oh yeah, but I couldn't remember the specific thing that made me think that before it happened. Yeah, so she is captured and it's turned out that she is a girl and then she ends up being sold by the back to a brothel. Yeah. And it just so happens to be the brothel that Zuckman and Amran are taking refuge in. Well, so what happens immediately is the imposter, there's chaos breaks out. The imposters have captured Flack and stripped her down. They're attacking everyone. Amran and Zlickman, uh, and Hanukkah get separated. And then the Radonite's elephant, the one that was, had the connection with Zlickman, shows up summoned by the death cry 
a flax protector elephant uh, and plows through their forces, which creates this opening where Zelikman gets on top of the 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 elephant with the Radonites and escapes. Amran is captured. I think Hanukkah is too. Uh, and then Zelikman sneaks into the capital city disguised as a Radonite trying to entreat with Bolgen. And this is where we learn that Bolgen is like, he's a very Shakespearean kind of villain, I think. He's haunted by his like guilt and his like, this feeling of being like out of place as like a ruler after having seized power by being like a conniving warlord. And so, um, this, it's been a few days, I think, since Sukkot, which is like a religious uh, holiday that involves constructing and sleeping in a tent. And he just refuses to leave the tent. He doesn't, he hasn't gone into the castle. He continues to sleep under the tent. And he's a character that's torn between his Jewish faith and his loyalty to his pagan ancestors. And in this sort of like liminal space of the tent outside under the moon, he feels a connection to both, which sort of assuages this guilt he has over the brutal way he seized power. He's also a, uh, excuse me, a racist. And a sexist. Uh, and a sexist. And he's obsessed with Satran, which we, which, uh, Amran has been playing throughout the series. He carries a Satran board with him and like plays against himself. And he is established as being like a tactical genius. And he is in the prison is playing like essentially a chess by mail game of Satran with Boljan that he is winning. And it's driving Boljan into a blind fury that he's losing to this prisoner. And so much so that he's going to execute him. And Zelikman talks his way into witnessing the execution while pretending to be this merchant. And then does like a daring escape where he frees his friend. And they they also pick up Hanukkah. And they escape. And then they take refuge in the brothel. Where Flack is then brought. And they come up with this plan. I believe it is Zelikman's idea. To talk to the... The Kagan. The Kagan, yes. Who ends up being this sort of eccentric character. Yeah. And they go there and he says he will help them, but he wants them to help him fake his death because he's tired of being the Kazgan and he wants to escape. Yeah. So they use Zillikman's medicinal know-how to fake his death. Then he poses as one of the Radonites, but before he dies, he sends a message asking for... Boljan to abdicate his throne. and Which they know he's not going to do. Yeah, but when it arrives to him, he's embroiled in a conflict with the Rus, who have turned on him at this point. While all of this has been happening, Flack has taken on new alias, posing as her brother, Alp, and rallied the returning Khazarian armies who have come from like quelling a rebellion in Crimea to her side under the guise of Alp. And so all of these things sort of coalesce at once and a fight breaks out and Boljan is brutally killed by an elephant. <laughs> yes. Well, you had to know that was coming. Yeah. That it, was a very, that's one of the dramatic parts of the, it sort of takes place like on this sort of, either in the harbor or. It's like on the docks, I on think. On the docks. Yeah. Because the Vikings are there as well. Yeah. They're demanding more and more payment from Boljan, and he's trying to get safe passage for himself and his family to escape this coming army. And then the elephant shows up, and 
uh, one of the soldiers shows up to arrest him and he stabs the soldier and he starts this fight and then the elephant just grabs him by his ankle and beats him against the dock over and over again. Zalikman covers the eyes of Boljan's children so they don't have to see their dad <laughs> get beaten to a pulp by an elephant. Uh, and then the... I don't... I like this story a lot except for the ending. <laughs> because the ending is... Zalikman and Falak make love. And then Zalikman and Amran leave to go have more adventures. Right. And then she... She takes on the persona of of does she become the she becomes her brother. She becomes her brother, and she takes on his persona to be both the Beck and the Kazan mm-hmm. of the Kagan. Kagan. So she's going to rule the. It's kind of like a Queen Elizabeth thing. She's going to rule that country, but to rule that country, she has to give up her identity as a woman mm-hmm. to do it, and she chooses to do that. So that Zekman knows, knows that they can't have a relationship and he decides to go back on the road with... But he, does he go with Hanukkah as well? No, he gives Hanukkah half of his money from helping Right, Falak. so he can buy his kind of like... For some reason, his beloved is a slave in the brothel, but the price keeps going up and up and up. I don't think she's a slave. I think she just has a contract. And I also think she's stringing him along a little bit. He's supposed to be kind of a dope. <laughs> Um, she, yeah, she keeps needing more and more money. So he finally gives her him a lump sum of money so that he can pay the contract out, right? Instead of take, giving her a little bit of money and saying, well, actually, it's more. Mm-hmm. So, Yeah. Oh, the reason that she has to impersonate her brother, which we didn't say, was in captivity, the rust contract a plague and Alp dies of, his, of an illness. Right. He's... He, it turns out that Alp all along has been on one of the long ships mm-hmm. as a rower. Yeah. And he gets the plague and he ends up dying. Yeah, so that's what then she, that's why she ends up having to impersonate him to rule. I just I don't mind the ending of them leaving. I like the detail where Zelikman gives Hanukkah the money. I just didn't feel like the Zelikman and Fleck relationship was like earned that way they they don't really spend that much of the story together no and also i was rooting for zelikman and hamran to get together <laughs> i mean their relationship is really intense they they embrace passionately several times they sleep in the same bed at least once amran says like zelikman's never been a man or a woman directly at one point but he also calls him the friend of his life when they embrace after being separated for a long period, Zelikman recognizes Amran's like smell under the scent of like ash and blood uh, that he's picked up in captivity. And there's a really sad part where Amran comp- like dejectedly compares his relationship to Zelikman to Zelikman's relationship to the horse Halel. But whatever, like it's fine. yeah. I don't I don't understand that relationship as well. Unless it was just sort of put in there so that it's clear the choice that she makes to become the leader of the country. It feels like an artifact from a version of the story that would have been, like, longer. Where they would have had more time to spend together and develop a relationship. And there would have been more time between the reveal that Flack was a girl and the ending. Like, that. that's what it feels like Yeah, because there is a part where when she ends up in the brothel, she's bruised... And he and and she needs medical attention, and he ends up spending time with her, giving her medical care. Yeah, but and she's I felt like that, for most of that. Yeah, but I felt like that, like that, could be the part that was edited out. 
It's also it's like... It's also not necessary. They're really just not... I mean, in a, in a story that the whole crux of the story is these are men and they have platonic relationships, it doesn't make sense to put some kind of like love interest in there. I mean, it's kind of like... The funny part of it is there, it, there should be no love interest because... One, they love each other, and two, they love their weapons, and they love their horses, yeah. and they love their elephants. Mm-hmm. So they're loving enough that they don't need to have some kind of heterosexual, you know, romance in there as well. It's also like functionally, like of all the like elements and moments that are supposed to build to this moment of intimacy between Falak and Zulikman, also happen with him and Hanukkah. Yeah, but you know what? I also didn't think that. Flack the whole time really gave you this impression that she or he at the time was so charismatic that you would want to follow them. Well, I mean, the I soldiers think- are all like, in tr- like we're we're given this idea that like, I think like Flack is a good leader to groups of people, but is bad at individual single person relationships. First, like in relationships between herself and an individual because she's so angry and impulsive and single minded. Which I kind of like. Like, I thought that was a nice character detail. I also... One thing I do like about the ending is, like... It all but outright states that Flack is non-binary. Because they talk about her as a man and as a woman. As, like, being, like... She is both of those things. They are both of those things. But also, on the flip side, Zuckman could be a bisexual. I mean, I kind of got that. That's what I was... How I read him initially leading up to that point. I was like... I, I was like, okay... I think all three of the main gentlemen of the road are supposed to be bi. Because Hanukkah's relationship to Zelda becomes very intense, too. There's a part where, like, in order to get, like, a sense of peace and grace after being part of this, like, Russ raid on this city, where Hanukkah, like, cleans and bathes Zelda and specifically washes his feet, which is, like, you know, like a thing with lots of religious symbolism. But a lot of religious scholars will talk about how some of those references in religious texts, like the washing of feet and stuff, are like metaphorical. Like feet are a stand-in for something else, like a, a more explicit, intimate act. Which is like before Amran is like, "Oh, Zelikman's never been with a man, another man, and a woman." I was like, "Oh, he's washing his feet." Okay, interesting. Because like the story has, like I said, it has this. Shabon writes it with this style that is, like, very heavy in irony, where, like, a lot of times he'll do a whole paragraph describing something. At the very end, give a little line that subverts everything he just described. And so I was like, I could see him being like, okay, he washed his feet, and then you linger on that detail, and we're supposed to to read it as something else. Like, there's this one part I think of specifically, the best example of this, is there's a soldier that's, like, dissenting to the formation of the Brotherhood of the Elephant. And Shabon describes this guy like collapsing from exhaustion and thirst and just being older because he's like a veteran soldier. And then the very last line of that paragraph is like, nobody but Hanukkah saw the wadded, saw the wad of Shami in Zelikman's hand. And you're like, oh, Zelikman drugged him. Like he didn't collapse of exhaustion at all. He was just drugged by Zelikman to quiet his descent. And so it's like, it makes it very easy to think that he's telling you certain details about characters that maybe he's not. And well, I might, that might be intentional in and of itself. I think so. And I think we talked about this when we did the Conan episode about these adventure stories sort of being, like, neutered. Yeah. And, like, you know, Conan is supposed to be, like, this 
really like sort of high libido kind of like lusty man's man but he's always just like yeah i had sex with that lady and it was good like that yeah you know he never has a relationship he's just like conquering these women and i think like zalkman's kind of interlude with falak is almost like the same thing yeah that's what i'm saying that's the one real part of the story that i didn't really like very much uh but i thought the rest of it was really good i like that it was clearly serialized so that each chapter mm-hmm. ended sort of with a cliffhanger. So, like, theoretically, you'd have to wait the next week to, to see what had happened. And I think that's sort of, like, that wave of, like, you know, like, what's going on, that sort of, like, cliffhanger, that, like, wave to get to the cliffhanger and then the cliffhanger and then waiting it to be resolved, kind of, like made like a separation between like their relationships because it was like you said it was like they didn't really clearly have like i mean he had mentioned that he had a fondness for her mm-hmm. the for flack and how he the he at the time reminded him of his daughter well that's them right but i don't think they like none of them were kind of like oh i i have feelings for you it was like after the battle we went back to the boarding house and they had sex and i he had, I guess, Amran has a relationship, like a long-standing relationship with this woman who lives in the brothel that he visits from time to time, Flower of Life, that he has a standing appointment with. Yeah, and he contemplates settling down with her and then ultimately decides to leave with the friend of his life, Zilifman. Uh And they're going to go to Africa, I think, is where they decide they're going to go next. I would like to, I would think it would be cool if he wanted to ever write another story about these guys, I would be down to read it, even... In, you know, even with that part that I didn't particularly like, I dig these characters and this style. Yeah, and I think, like, we talked about it really was, like, an homage to, like, the classic age of, like, pulp action mm-hmm. adventure stories. And I think that's kind of, like, done in a really sophisticated way that sort of shines the light on, like, a piece of Jewish history that most people might not know about. Yeah. So. And I like the characters, despite the sort of flaws but i felt like they were very kind of they were rich characters and we knew a lot about them even Mm. in this short period and this book is like jam-packed with action i mean there's like 20 fight scenes like like, like daring escapes horse chases uh like there's a stealth mission yeah it's a it's a really like like, they attack a city they fight the vikings mm -hmm. i mean they do like a lot of stuff and it's kind of like they do it in this very sort of cavalier way like you know this is just how we live our life you know and and things like you know they he makes fun of the axe which is like called what defiler of mothers yes and then at one point he's like what are you gonna defile my mother with this like yeah like that's exactly what i'm gonna do like they have this sort of iconic weapons that they like and there's this implication of like all these other adventures they've had where like they you know they alternate who gets to pick which way they travel there's a part where the kagan asks uh he's admiring uh or he's being threatened with mother defiler and he's like oh this might be ballsy i can't remember one of the characters is like hey have you ever uh chopped the head off of any kings with this thing and he's like, and Amran's like, ah, he's being humble, but he still says like, you know, a few minor cons maybe. <laughs> and it's like, okay, like there's all these other cool stories where they're like fighting like against the warlords and cons and stuff and doing all sorts of cool stuff. And I like that, like, 
I'm a sucker for stories about traveling warriors, and part of what I like is this like implication of history of like we're we're only ever seeing a piece of this. Like we you can read every Conan story, but in the implication is that there's like hundreds that just you'll never get to see because they're just not written down, and they happen in between the ones we do see. Well, I think this. I mean, we didn't talk about another one of his sort of dives into iconic genre writing is when he writes a Sherlock Holmes inspired story. Mm-hmm. But Sherlock Holmes is the same way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's all these sort of, you know, nods to like stories and things that had happened off stage, like adventures that Watson and Sherlock Holmes have. Mm-hmm. And I think it's the same exact way. Yeah, it's like, you know, Scrooge McDuck is a very similar character. <laughs> He's got lots of untold stories that he references all the time. And there's a really cool... <laughs> A uh, comic called Life and Times of Scrooge McDuck, where they try to contextualize all these references into a coherent narrative. There, uh, I've referenced before on this um, Doc Savage's Apocalyptic Life by Philip Jose Farmer, and that's like a similar sort of exercise. I just I like all that stuff, especially because it leaves all of this room for like later people to to riff on. Like I think we could potentially see, you know, some decades down the line some other writer do a riff on Gentleman of the Road. Well, yeah, because I think it's sort of, it's set in that kind of iconic world where the formula, the the pieces of the formula that are needed to create the story have already been there and Mm -hmm. they just need to be put together. Yeah. But I really, I mean, I liked it. I had read it before and I recommended it to you because I was surprised that you hadn't fully read yeah, I guess it just like slipped through my my notice. But yeah, this was I, I enjoyed it a lot. I uh, I really dug this. And I feel like I mean you don't have to be a fan of like Conan stories or adventure stories in general because I feel like the relationship and the character development is so rich. Mm-hmm. And also, I mean, even though it's an action story, an adventure story, it really reads like historical as well because I mean you're kind of question if like if it's accurate or not because it's so well written Mm -hmm. that you believe what's happening is historical which i think is really well done because a lot of times something is a historical piece it's either the history is driving the story or the history is false or incomplete and it really takes detracts from the enjoyment of the story well i think he takes advantage of the fact we reference multiple times that he's using a lot of historical elements that are not they're they're not set in stone at this point. Like there there is a lot of mystery and unknown around them that gives him space to play around in. I also think it's nice that it sort of highlights, like I said before, like when you think of like Jewish history or you think of like this this time period, like you said, you don't think about things like the Radonites mm-hmm. or that there were, you know, that the Vikings had taken, you know, were involved in large influence in large cultures. And you kind of think about like one thing happening at a time. Mm-hmm. And I think like the parts of history where there's a convergence that people focus on all the time, kind of like when the Romans came to England and the Picts, you know, like things like that. This is sort of like a group of a culture and a group of people that don't really get a lot of literary attention. So it kind of like, makes for a more enriching story because you're learning something mm-hmm. as you're... Because, like, while you're reading the book, you have to look up things because you're like, I don't know what this yeah. game is that he's playing. I don't know what this relationship is between, 
you know, like the Vikings and, you know, Jewish culture mm-hmm. and even that there was some kind of relationship and influence by the Vikings on Jewish culture. Yeah, I, I like stuff like that because it really does make me feel like I was a kid. I have a reputation uh, amongst people that know me for having a lot of inexplicable knowledge. And a lot of that came from being a kid and reading books that were probably aimed at, written before my time and aimed at people that were older than me. And just writing down every reference and looking them up and asking you and whoever about them and absorbing all that knowledge. And this had lots of that where I was like, oh, what's a Radonite? Oh, what's Satran? And like, it was cool. I felt like I learned a bunch of interesting stuff that I didn't know beforehand by reading this. Plus, it was a fun adventure story. Also, it's crammed full of weird vocabulary words that you can look up, which I think is fun. Some people might find that to be annoying, but I, I, you know, I, I dig it. Yeah, I, I think it I mean, just alone, the elephants. I mean, I feel like even though they're not a major part of the story, they play a major role in the mm-hmm. story. And I feel like for people who are like reading adventure stories and say like, this is really cool, like get to the ending and like, you know, the evil character that they're trying to defeat is just like taken out like in one fell swoop from a giant elephant mm-hmm. who's like pretty much whole thing is he's seen too much more and he's tired of it. Yeah. So. Yeah, no, it's cool. It's a good story. Do we have anything else to say about it? I don't think so. I think, I mean, if you like Pulp Fiction, you like history, mm-hmm. you like action stories, it's like Michael Chabon is really good at taking like a genre and like dipping his toe into it. And I think yeah. that's kind of a, a sign of a really good versatile writer. Yeah, I would definitely recommend checking it out. I recommend it. I would definitely recommend checking it out. So what do we have coming up next? Uh, next up, we are going to do uh, Volume 8 of The Wicked and the Divine. That's the penultimate volume. After that, we're going to have one more. So, And this is the fluffy interlude? Is that what? I believe this is the, the, the literally fluffy <laughs> interlude. Maybe. I don't know. There is at least one cat-related character in the series. So we might get some feline content. I think this, this. is a lot of... It's like a compilation of issues that are either flashback issues or there's like some specials that i think are collected in this yeah uh so don't expect a lot of the plot line to be moving forward but i mean we could all do with like learning uh, understanding and being less confused so maybe this yeah hopefully it'll clear some stuff up before we get into the (laughs) finale i'm excited to get to the finale but i like that we're gonna get a little bit more beforehand uh, and then you can tune into that episode and we'll announce what we're going to do for December, which will be Wicked Divine Volume 9 and a novella. But whatever. <laughs> uh, spoiler alert, stay tuned. Bye, everyone. Bye.